0: Next, this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. ReachMD examines new developments in the diagnosis and treatment of gender-specific medical issues. When patients think of testicular cancer immediately, they think of two ramifications, the impact on their fertility and on their sexuality. How should we counsel our patients on these issues, and how will patient concerns change as we continue to improve our understanding and our treatment of testicular cancer? Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Craig Nichols, Medical Director of Lymphoma and Testicular Cancer Research Program at the Robert W. France Cancer Research Center at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nichols is an internationally respected expert on testicular cancer. Welcome, Dr. Nichols.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: We are discussing the impact of testicular cancer on fertility and sexuality and future applications for testicular cancer care. Dr. Nichols, let's start with the basics. How does a testicular cancer diagnosis impact fertility and sexuality?
1: Well, let's start with the fertility issue first. I think that that is a very common concern but in fact most patients with modern therapy retain their pre-treatment fertility status. Granted a number of those patients are subfertile to begin with which may be part of the constellation of aspects of this disease. But if patients come into the diagnosis with a normal sperm count, the vast majority of those patients currently will return to that status within a year or two after their primary therapy, whether that's orchiectomy or even chemotherapy.
0: The chemotherapy does not affect their fertility at all?
1: It certainly temporarily does. But again, within two years, if you start with a normal sperm count, better than 80% of those patients will return to their pre-treatment levels. We still bank sperm in patients nowadays because many of the people with subfertile counts can still achieve conception with a lot of the new technologies. But most patients return to their native sperm count after treatment.
0: Clearly, we shield the contralateral testes if they're getting radiation.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And what about sexuality?
1: I think it is a common concern, but I don't think it should be we take a fair amount of attention to the pre-treatment testosterone levels. Most patients do not, even with an orchiectomy, do not suffer a significant decrement in their native testosterone levels and their sex drive and function remains normal after orchiectomy. Chemotherapy doesn't affect testosterone levels to a negative degree. Radiation of the contralateral testis can in high doses, but with modern therapy, given at low doses, we can retain gonadal function as well.
0: And what about testicular prostheses? Do you use them frequently?
1: I'm not a surgeon, but many men consider them. I would say very few go through with it. It's a bit of a second procedure, obviously, although it can be placed at the time of initial surgery. Uh, people who have had them, and certainly in my experience, have not been entirely satisfied with them in that they don't feel natural to, to the patient. And I would say the number of young men who choose that is way less than 5% of patients undergoing orchiectomy.
0: That's surprising. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, it is a bit surprising, but I think after their orchectomy, realize that their sexual image is not that much difference, at least appearance wise. And, and I think when they get the opportunity to to feel a prosthesis or talk to other men who have had a prosthesis placed, they opt against it. And, and oftentimes they're encouraged by their partners saying, you know, it's fine as is.
0: There's no downside to getting them. In other words, there's no safety issues.
1: Not that I'm aware. I mean, occasionally they are removed because they cause some local problems, but I'm not aware that there were issues related to leakage or breakage or anything like that.
0: If a patient asks you your advice as their medical oncologist, uh, whether they should get an implant or not, what do you usually advise?
1: I usually ask them to examine a a prosthesis, and I I have a number of people who have had them and who who have not had them, and I have them talk to either of them and and let them make the decision. But I think generally the, the vast majority pass on it.
0: If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and with me today is Dr. Craig Nichols, Medical Director of Lymphoma and Testicular Cancer Research at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nichols is an internationally respected expert on testicular cancer. We are discussing the impact of testicular cancer on fertility and sexuality and future applications for testicular cancer care. Dr. Nichols, how often should physicians recommend that their patients follow up during and after treatment for testicular cancer?
1: Well, it varies quite a bit depending on your risk of recurrence. And there are fairly well-established guidelines based on risk of recurrence. And patients with a substantial risk of recurrence have more frequent observations, oftentimes up to every month to six weeks for the first year, whereas patients with a low risk of recurrence we see once or twice a year.
0: And other than physical examination, routine blood tests, chest x-ray, etc., what special tests are done to follow these patients?
1: Well, frequently, the most common other test is abdominal pelvic CT scans. How often? It depends on what your risk of recurrence is. If you have a high risk of recurrence, they're usually done approximately three or four times in the first year, about half that frequently in the second year. And the pattern of of recurrence as such is that if you don't recur within the first year or two, the chances are low. And so our follow-up drops off very substantially after two years.
0: Are we doing more laparoscopic retroperitoneal lymph node dissections, or are we just going towards more advanced imaging techniques?
1: I would say that the vast Majority of research emphasis is on better imaging, and we are moving away from retroperitoneal lymph node dissections quite strongly open or laparoscopic. So, I think that most testis cancer urologists would say that laparoscopic RPLND is an experimental procedure.
0: Why do they think it's an experimental procedure?
1: Because it's not been demonstrated to be an equivalent cancer operation to an open procedure. It doesn't save that much time. And in the laparoscopic series compared to the open series, all patients who had any cancer identified were given chemotherapy. So that results in double treatment. So with an open RPLMD, if it's done well, you can simply observe patients after that surgery laparoscopic RPLMD, most medical oncologists would say that the best strategy in that setting is to give them chemotherapy in addition. So I personally do not believe, and I know that most other centers do not believe that that is the standard of care.
0: Are there any clinical scenarios where you would definitely suggest a open retroperitoneal lymph node dissection?
1: Yes. I think any post-chemotherapy retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, which is the primary role for RPL and D nowadays should be done open.
0: And when would you definitively determine that, that should be done?
1: We usually re image a patient approximately one month after their chemotherapy, and if they have significant residual disease, They go to surgery for resection of what is often teratoma.
0: Tell us about nanotechnology in this field.
1: As far as I'm aware, there is no research, no substantial research in this area, and our current research platform doesn't include that approach.
0: Where are the research platforms going? In other words, which of the areas that are being investigated seem to be the most fertile areas?
1: I think there are several areas that are going to be fertile in terms of improving. And you have to understand where we're coming from here is that we have therapy that is nearly perfect therapeutically. So it's not likely that we're going to cure more patients with any new therapies. The, the challenge is to cure, retain that very high cure rate with lesser interventions. So the primary research questions are in toxicity reduction. The second big area is in communications of guidelines and making sure that everyone with test cancer gets state-of-the-art care. And with a lot of the virtual capabilities we have nowadays, we believe that we can give very expert oversight and guidelines across the world with taking advantage of some of the electronic technologies.
0: You use the word perfect in terms of treatment options. Has the chemotherapy progressed to a point where it is really that successful that we have reached the pinnacle of chemotherapy?
1: For the vast majority of patients, that is true. So, for instance, a young man with low HCG and alpha protein, say less than 1,000, with a few pulmonary nodules, his cure rate exceeds that of pneumococcal pneumonia. So we can literally almost guarantee that person that they will be cured of their illness if things are done correctly. So we can with confidence say that your curate in the most common settings approach 100%.
0: Dr. Nichols, tell us a little bit about the Cancer Center opened at your institution, the Providence Portland Medical Center. I
1: think the advantage that this will bring to people reflects many of the themes that we have talked about is that it will bring laboratory and clinical science much closer to patient care. So we have built a center around our laboratory investigators and our large database researchers so that we can not only discover new therapies but develop and deliver them to patients in need, whether that's testicular cancer with very good outcomes or many other cancers for which we have a very long ways to go. So it's a patient-centered building with the core being research-driven care.
0: And if you look into your crystal ball, where do you see testicular cancer treatment, let's say, five to ten years from now?
1: I think there are two or three horizons that I hope we achieve over that time frame. First of all, as I said, I think I would hope and I believe that we will be able to deliver very good, very standard care to hopefully everyone in the world, and that will make a marked difference because the low-hanging fruit in this disease are not the patients we lose because they have resistant advanced disease, but it's the patients who don't have expert oversight in terms of guiding therapy, interpreting scans, and blood markers correctly, and providing recommendations for very good therapies. So certainly in third world countries and areas where access is difficult, even in first world countries. We hope to resolve that, and I think that's happening. Secondly, I think there are a number of biological and molecular issues that we hope to solve. And again, it's not likely to lead to better therapy for testicular cancer because therapy is already so good. But It may help us answer the questions why this disease is so exquisitely chemotherapy-sensitive compared to other cancers that aren't, and that lesson may be able to help us apply those molecular lessons to other cancers. And thirdly, I think it's going to be an era of toxicity reduction and that we're going to learn to continue to refine therapy and surveillance to a degree that patients will have very few, if any, consequences of their disease and treatment.
0: I want to thank our guest, Dr. Craig Nichols. We've been discussing the impact of testicular cancer on fertility and sexuality and future applications for testicular cancer care. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment, Focus on Men's Health. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health.